closed. Don't you just love that sound? Yes, I do. little wine ASR moment before we get started. Mm. Hello guys. Welcome. It's your two favorite winaholics. Sorry. No. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to get comfortable to where I don't make noise while I move or if I move. <clears throat> this is your host Kristen and your other host Sarah. Hey. Hey. We're back. With another cult episode. <gasps> Ooh. Okay. And oh, yeah. this is a, it's a long one, baby. So mm, you, you get that wine, you get that glass. Kristen and Sarah sized up. Which wine are you chugging tonight? I am drinking a wine that my sister-in-law gifted me as a congratulation mm. present for our podcast which is so oh, nice. how sweet of her yes. so thank you liz she got me a bethel heights estate pinot noir oh, that sounds fancy as fuck yeah i don't know if it is but it tastes good and that's good yeah nice and bold and kind of stout so good for tonight's episode hills yeah what about you i well, I am also trying a different wine today. I am not, it's not even a cab. I'm really surprising myself. It's a Bellini. It's a Toscana San Giovese. Mm. It's good. I'm not upset about it. So, I let okay. it aerate this time and it's fucking tastes like wine water. So I'm having a good time. Oh. Yeah. Wine water. Like nothing, kind of. It's like, I don't know, you know? It's like uh, I'm drinking warm water, but it just has like <laughs> a tiny hint of grape. Yum. I make a terrible <laughs> wine taster. <laughs> don't, what's that? What do they call them? Uh, sommelier. Sommelier. Oh, sommelier. Yeah, so that's, I don't know. Some, wine sommelier. There's that one Netflix. Yeah. They have that one show about it on Netflix. Apparently, you can make a shit ton of money doing it. Yeah. Buku's bug. Yeah, because yeah. getting um, certified or whatever to the master level of sommelier is super hard and kind of rare. Like, you have to have that gift of... Palette, yeah. The palette it's not the like senses, a top your nose. Mm-hmm. Mm. Nope. I'd just be like, this grape water is fucking great, guys. Thank you. I'd love to just taste and test wines. I don't think I could because don't they make you spit? Like I would just drink it. I would yeah, be drunk maybe. by the. But I'm sure you get hooked up, you know. True, maybe. I'd do it for free bottles of wine for yeah. sure, but no one would hire me because I would <laughs> describe their wine as water. Like, so uh, you haven't tried any of the wines yet, and you have wine lip. I've been drinking. No, I mean like, never mind. Oh. <laughs> No, I get, I get it now. I, yeah, it was like you just scenario. have a permanent, yeah. 
Like you go to H-E-B with wine lip and, or like, no, 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 no. Okay. So you're driving home and the cop pulls you over and you're, they're like, ma'am, that's some, that's some wine lip on you. And you're like, officer, I swear I didn't sip any. Yeah. I'm a sommelier. Just gurgled. I'm a sommelier. Just gargled that shit. I don't swallow. And that's why she's single. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho. Anywho. Shall we get into this? This is not Kristen's dating profile. No, guys, this isn't Tinder. It's the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast, the podcast where we talk about murder, mystery, and mishaps. Mishaps. Mm-mm. And boy, do I have the biggest fucking mishaps for you today. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm excited. This one's a, it's a doozy. They're all doozies. This one especially. And Yeah. So today, we'll just get right into yeah, it. Yeah, let's do I, it. Let me buckle up. Check my rear view mirror. We're good. Don't get pulled over with that wine because, <laughs> oh boy, today we are going to be talking about Aldolfo Costanzo, otherwise known as the leader of the Matamoros cult. Oh. I just got chills, but I don't know. Matamoros. Like, do I know you? There's a Matamoros taco at Taco Palenque that I always <laughs> eat, but that is not the Matamoros where you're talking about. It's actually a city, I think, in Mexico. Oh, fuck. I should probably hold on. Yeah. It's a city in the northeastern Mexican state of Tamaulipas. Cool. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So are we in Mexico for this story? Well, you remember your spring break? Yes. Did you have fun? Yes. Wait, like this Wait. year? Or just like any spring, any break. spring break. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Remember being in college, going to spring break? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did that more in high school, to be, to be well, fair. Before I dropped out, I attended a spring break college trip to uh, Panama City, Florida. Oh. I went to <laughs> PCB. Um. Yeah, we went over to <laughs> Florida. And, you know, I'm really proud of myself. I, I didn't throw up. Nice. I know. Hell yeah. I know. Should have seen the chicks beside me, though, digging Uh holes in the sand. (laughs) (laughs) It was good, though. But yeah, so we are taking it back. I'm sorry. The good old spring break vibes. All I can think about is just stepping in sandy puke. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I feel it in my toes. What was worse was the bottle caps or, like, the broken glass. Oh, yeah. My feet were so ripped up. It was, hmm. Okay, but yeah. sorry. No, it's cool. But, yeah, we are, it is in Matamoros, technically. We're taking it back to spring break. The year is 1989. Oh, what a good year. Good I year. I was not alive, but what a Lord good born year. born yet, great fucking year. So, 21-year-old Mark Kilroy and his friends Bill Huddleston, Bradley Moore, and Brent Martin were about to do the same fucking thing. They were about to live it up. It was their spring break trip, happy as can be. Mark and Bradley had actually been talking about this spring break trip since the start of fall fall semester. They had been buddies since they were basketball teammates over in Santa Fe High School. And even though 
they went to different schools in college, Mark being a junior pre-med student at the University of Texas and Bradley being a sophomore electrical engineer major at Texas A&M. Really smart fucking dudes. Yeah, yeah, they didn't let the distance get to them, though. They would actually call each other at least twice a week to talk about the deeper things in life. You know, like beer, girls, the beach. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Miss Tanline contest and uh, the night across the border in Matamoros, their spring break trip that was coming up. So it was just really cute, like, total bromance. Hmm. I chugged my wine and I got nauseous. Oh, nice. Dude, I was actually kind of hungover today, all day, and didn't know if I was going to drink, but here I am. So I'm right there with you. Borderline. Don't know if it's helping or making it worse. Yeah, that's what I get for bragging about not throwing up. (laughs) Oh my god, no, I literally might throw up. I know, I can hear your mouth salivating from here. Hold on. (laughs) Keep the mic on. Why am I so embarrassing? Are you okay there? Yeah, barely. God, I'm sorry. Okay, we made fun. We made fun of you last episode. You took your chance saw the throw up comment and you just had to make me get sick <laughs> off of one sip of wine <laughs> literally don't even know how to start this okay so yeah they called each other all the time but either way they were really excited for their spring break trip into Matamoros they were one of the tens of thousands of high school and college students that would cross the small bridge from Brownsville, Texas into Matamoros, Mexico to party their fucking pants off because in Mexico, obviously, you don't need to be 21 to drink. You can be 18, right. party off. Hell yeah. And the American cop, George Gavito, would even say that kids like as young as 16 would go because obviously some of the clubs are like aren't, I guess, going to card or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you would have super young people going in and still being able to party and get their drink on so it was expected to be a great time they always had thousands of kids go party have a great time and then make their way back home but all of that was about to change this spring break Mm. so on march 10th of 1989 bradley moore had finished his exams and left his mobile home got in his mustang and made the trip from bryan texas over to austin texas was there in austin where he would pick up mark and then they would go back to santa fe their hometown where they would meet two of their other pals bill and brent who they had been friends through the baseball team and mark and Bradley obviously were at the basketball team buddies and they were all just like athletic group of uh, guys in high school yeah sporty friends blah (laughs) it's from there that the boys would get into Bradley's car and make their way down into Brownsville Texas so there's this huge bridge between Brownsville and uh, Matamoros that a lot of the spring breakers would go ahead and park their car in Brownsville right across the border and then just walk that bridge into Mexico and walk to wherever they wanted to party. Mm. In one article, it made it seem like they had made it and were partying for a few days. But according to the dates that were given, if Bradley did in fact leave on March 10th, 
then they were really only there for a day or two partying. But either way, on the early morning of March 11th, when the boys were drunk and ready to call it a night, they decided to go ahead and make their way back to the border where their car was parked on the other side. So at this time, Mark is saying goodbye to a girl from the Miss Tanline concert who he, or sorry, the Miss Tanline contest that he had been flirting with throughout the night, you know. He ended up saying bye to her and walking back with his buddies towards the bridge. In... It was during that walk at some point that Mark stops and says, like, oh, I have to pee. Hmm. He broke his damn seal and just really had to go. And he was extremely drunk at this point, too. Like, uh, when he was talking to the girl, his friend said that he was, like, leaning over a Volkswagen, Mm -hmm. kind of, like, slumped over, like, (laughs) and so his friends were like, okay, yeah, you can go pee. You'll catch up with us later. So the three friends watch as Mark walks into an overgrown park located just like 200 feet away from the border, and they continue making their way across the border into the town. You don't let your drunk-as-fuck friend walk off in the dark to pee in another country. Friends, don't fucking do that, okay? I get it. This is the 80s, and these are all boys, but even if you're a boy, like... No one's safe, yo. No one's safe. You don't ever leave, a, especially a drunk friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, shouldn't leave a friend, period. But especially if they're drunk, like, just please don't. Right. You don't, you have no idea what is going to happen to them. So Bill, Bradley, and Brent make their way across the border onto the U.S. side. They get to the car, and they wait. And they, and they wait. wait. Oh. And they wait. Oh, my God. Eventually, two hours pass before the boys finally start to get worried, which I'm assuming that that's a boy thing, because if you hadn't made it back to the car within 20 minutes, like, I would have been calling the cops. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know. But either way, after two hours, I mean, to them, they're thinking, like, oh, you know, maybe he just went back to a bar. Maybe he met some girl on the way back. They're just... Trying to be rational and trying not to think the worst of, like, what could have possibly happened. Why he isn't walking back to the car. Um, But finally, after those two hours, they decide, like, okay, we need to go and look for him and, like, see what's going on. And so they decide to leave the car and head back into Matamoros and try to find him. But they never do. Mm. It's not until the next day, when they have yet to hear from Mark, they... In their minds, they're like, maybe, just maybe he made it back to the border by himself, found a ride, and made it back home safe. So they give it the night. As soon as they wake up, they go over to Mark's parents and see if he's there. Of course he's not. And that's when they tell him something has gone terribly wrong. And they go to the Cameron County Sheriff's Department in Brownsville. Okay. So his family was nearby? I think that the family was in Brownsville. It's really hard to say. But either way, they either called Mark's parents or they went straight to the police. Either way, they did end up going to the Cameron County Sheriff's Department in Brownsville to report him missing. So at that time, that's when Lieutenant George Gavito would be the one to take the family's statements and try to help solve the case. So at first, obviously, he's a cop. He's going to think, well, he just met a girl somewhere. You know, he's... He's on a bender. He's getting drunk. Mexico has drugs. Maybe he's dabbling. Yeah. He'll be fine, and he'll show up in a couple of days. But his friends and family are adamant, like, no, this is not Mark. He is 
a med a pre-med student at UT. He is extremely smart and responsible. He is really not the person to like party a lot. Obviously, it's spring break. They're going to have fun, but he's not one to like go off on a bender every other time. It's just right. kind of like a regular college partying type of deal. Nothing too crazy. Yeah. Um, One of his family friends, Monica Rodriguez Davis, had even described him as a humble, quiet man who would carry around his Bible all the time and that God and Jesus were the center of his life. And uh, he also did have a very close relationship with his parents. Okay, so his parents did live in Santa Fe, Texas, but I guess because they assumed that he went missing in the Brownsville area, they had to go to Brownsville, I guess, to report it. it. And like Santa Fe is close to Galveston and then Brownsville is like kind of at the very tip Mm -hmm. so like here's texas brownsville is like literally right at the very tip where texas ends yeah i think i've crossed the border at brownsville brownsville before yeah honestly i think i've walked over that bridge yeah it's a really like well-used spot so gavito gets enough uh statements to think like okay maybe this guy really isn't on some bender maybe he truly is missing so let's see what i can do to help Well, by the time we get to this point, 72 hours have already passed since Mark's been missing. Yeah. That's not good. I I don't know how it was. This is in the 80s. I don't really know how it was back then. But, I mean, especially today, like, the first 48 hours, really, are so important. So it's already, like, to me, someone who is familiar with, like, the true crime investigative scene, like, it's already looking fucking frustrating and Mm -hmm. chances are slim it's getting real slim on top of that like any of the potential witnesses that could have seen anything are already back home in the u.s like spread across the u.s and it only gets more grim once gavito actually gets in contact with the matamoros police oh so since mark technically disappeared in mexico it's not under gavito's jurisdiction but Thankfully, the Brownsville police force had dealt with Matamoros police force in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, That's drugs, obviously. (laughs) You're right at the border. So, yeah, you you got to. Yeah, you got to. You got to. Got to share thoughts. So, Mm -hmm. thankfully, they. I'm trying to think of something, but I couldn't. Yeah. But thankfully, they were able, like, they had connections with the cops. They were able to talk to them fairly quickly to get a grasp of what was going on. But it didn't help them at all. You see, according to the Matamoros cops, Mark disappeared in the U.S. Therefore, it's not their problemo, hombre. Yep. Like my Spanish is so slim, I'm trying to think of a response. And uh, (laughs) yeah, it's bad. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be saying some Spanish words probably really badly, but. I was also raised in a Mexican-American household, so don't make fun of me too hard. Blame my mom for that one. Yes. <laughs> can't believe you're drinking that wine. Tastes like water. Like <laughs> I'll just throw up in a second. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, thankfully, uh, Gavito was actually able to find an agency in Mexico that would work with him. And this was the Mexican Federal Police, and it was a special drug enforcement ring in particular that was under the command of Commandment Juan Benitez Ayala. So sorry, yeah. I said that wrong. 
<laughs> so when they get to the agent, or so when they make contact with this agency and finally have eyes in Mexico to help search for Kilroy, the friends, family, police start posting flyers everywhere. Like over 200,000 flyers in both Spanish and English were posted all along the Rio Grande Valley. And a $15,000 reward was out there for any information that would lead to any sign of Mark Kilroy. Wow. And obviously this is a disappearance of a college town or a small town college kid. So media did cover this one fairly quick. He was also white, so that doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the media was able to get in there and uh, really get the word spread around and Once that happened, tips would come in from everywhere. So you had a psychic that reported a vision of Kilroy's body had appeared alongside what looked like a witch's cauldron. Hmm. And there was even a Satanist in Brownsville that had confessed to murdering Kilroy and burying his body on the beach. But when they went, when he was under further questioning, he completely recanted and said, I just made it up. I just wanted the popularity. Stupid. I really don't get why people do that. Makes Waste me mad. Of time and energy. It's so stupid. Yeah. But even though the tips would pour in, the hours would turn into days and the days would turn into weeks. And it really started to seem like any capacity of Mark being found was just slowly slipping through their fingers. Uh. And to everyone around him, it just seems like he just vanished into thin air. Yeah. But Mark's father would tell local police that. There's hope that somebody has him because we haven't found him yet. Right. So he really, his father really tried to keep as much hope throughout those weeks that they hadn't found him as much right. as he could. And Gavito's, Sadly, you know, like they're they're missing and you, you think of the worst that could possibly happen, but no remains have been found. So that leaves hope, but it's still like really it's so sad, sad, scary hope. Because you want to believe that, like, maybe, just maybe, he decided to run away and just start a new life. Or, like, maybe he's just lost somewhere and he'll return. But it's really, like, the not knowing and the not having, like, not having your baby to literally bury. It's so rough. Like, you, it's just the not knowing. You have no idea what happened. Yeah. But Mark's father was not aware in the moment, just how close they were to actually finding the evil truth as to what happened to him. Sorry. It's, oh, okay. I'm going to say this right now. Sorry. I did not give this warning earlier. Um, This one is a doozy because a lot of people died in very tragic ways. I do go into detail a little bit about it and uh, animals also were involved in some of these murders. So if you do not want to hear that, if you do not like that, please click off. I'm sorry we will have somewhat of a happier episode <laughs> or lighter episode, I guess, next week. Um, but yeah, this one is rough, gory details. So just keep that in Gore. mind. Yeah, this is this is your one warning. <laughs> <laughs> So just three weeks after Mark had disappeared, on April 9th, 1989, some strange events were about to happen at a routine police checkpoint near Matamoros. Oh. So Commandant Benitez and his officers would set up 
routine checkpoints around and near Matamoros in hopes to get drugs off the street. He had just been put in the force not that long ago, and he was trying to really make an impression that, hey, I'm here to do good. It's when Benitez forces up with the American Drug Enforcement on one of the largest drug interdiction efforts that the two agencies had ever witnessed that they find a car that leads them exactly to the answers that they had been searching for. A man by the name of Serafine Hernandez simply drove past the roadblock as if the cops weren't even there. Ah, smart. So, of course, when this happens, it leads to a high-speed chase that ends when the driver pulls up to a ranch called Santa Elena, just south of Matamoros, that belonged to the Hernandez family. So, Serafine prompted officers to shoot him during the chase and honestly seemed really shocked when he parked at the ranch that cops were even trying to arrest him. Oh. Now, of course, they did arrest him because he drove past a roadblock and there was another cult member, David Martinez, or I should say there was another guy, David Martinez, that they had also put in handcuffs and they began to search the car and the ranch for clues because sketch. Yeah. It was during, and when the search happened, they would get two more people, uh, Elio Hernandez and Sergio Martinez, to show up to the scene and they just showed up at the wrong fucking time. So as Mm -hmm. soon as they showed up, cops were like, "Uh uh-uh, you're a part of this and proceeded to handcuff them and arrest them. So upon investigation... They found a total of around 200 pounds of marijuana on the ranch. Oh. I didn't convert that, and I don't know if this is a proper conversion, but I did read somewhere that it was like three kilograms. I don't even know. That's probably wrong. Just ignore me. Convert 200 pounds of marijuana if you don't know how large that is. It's a lot, though. It's It's like a... That's a big boy. When they were searching around the ranch, they also found a shed. Now, when officers approached the shed, the first thing that they noticed was the smell. You know, that rotten stench of decay us true crime freaks are all too familiar with, even though we've never fucking smelled it. But as soon as we hear it, we're like, dead body. So once they peeked inside the shed, they did not see a body. But what they did see were candles. They saw an altar. There was a large cauldron that looked like there were sticks sticking out of it. And as soon as the Matamoros officers saw this, they noped the fuck out of there. They refused to go in any further, knowing that this was clear signs of a brujeria or a witch, witchcraft. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I probably said that really wrong. I'm trying my best. Doing great, sweetie. Yeah. <laughs> so Benitez at this time decided to completely call off the search until a curandero could be summoned to cast out the demons. Okay. So even the cops are. <laughs> I just thought it was funny how, like, literally the police are like, nope, not until we get yeah. someone to cleanse the evil from this shed. So, yeah, they didn't even bother going in the shed, had no idea what was in there, but the marijuana that they found on the ranch was obviously enough for them to just say fuck it and take those four men into custody. And uh, along with the four men, they did end up taking the caretaker of the ranch in as well. He was this really old dude who just would look after the goats on the ranch. But cops Hmm. figured that since he worked on there, he probably potentially saw some shit going on. And 
was trying to see if they could get any information on the events that had taken place on this ranch because obviously some freaky shit is going on. And it's actually during the interview with this caretaker when he sees a photo of Mark Kilroy posted up against the wall, points his finger right at the photo and goes, I know that boy. You see, I know him because I had actually given him water and bread because they... The group that you just took and uh, had him tied up in the back of a suburban out here on the ranch. But oh my god, I gave him the food and water. And I mean, I have no idea what happened to him after. But I know that he was actually here on this ranch and that these guys had some part of it. Right. Oh, my God. So now with this information, Benitez turns his attention to the Hernandez brothers and the other men that they had brought in from the ranch. Now, everyone is being tight-lipped except for our non-skeptic hombre, Serafin. Hmm. Now, Serafin Hernandez was 20 years old, living in Brownsville, and he was attending TSC, which is Texas Southmost College, and spoke perfect English, so was just the perfect guy for this kind of job, I guess. He seemingly led a double life uh, as a supplier for the Hernandez Narcotics Organization, or Los Narcos Santanicos, to bring more cocaine cocaina or grass into mm-hmm. brownsville and he was like really well off i believe they said he had like fancy sunglasses he had nice clothes he had a lot of money i mean obviously they're drug cartel but yeah it was really well off and yeah wow. he he openly so it's when he sits down to be questioned by police where he openly admits that yeah he and the men had kidnapped mark and actually took him out on to the ranch And El Padrino, a.k.a. the Godfather, had told him to take him out there. So with this evidence, the Matamoros cops decide to go ahead and call the Brownsville police. And Benitez is like, hey, we need you to come down here and help us with this investigation. They say that they have seen Mark or they may know where Mark is or at least what happened to him. Right. A start, at least. Yeah. But at this point, they don't know where Mark is. They don't know if he's still alive, if he's dead, where the body is where he is they have no idea yeah so it's hard to say but i believe that seraphine says at some point like i will show you where mark is if you take me back to the ranch so officers do end up taking them back to the ranch to question them further about mark and the events that happened there and it's at that time where so they're Dudley Colts, it's a show on Oxygen if you've never heard of it. Fucking amazing. Binged all of it. But they had showed actual footage of the cops bringing Seraphine and those men back onto the ranch. And video of Seraphine basically explaining, chill as a fucking cucumber, how they kidnapped and killed Mark Kilroy. Oh. And he went even further as he calmly walked over to grab a shovel pointed over to a corner in the land and said yeah he's buried right over there i'll show you he proceeds to dig up the remains which through dental records would later confirm that this was in fact the body of mark kilroy while uncovering mark benitez noticed how there was wire sticking out of the grave and asked seraphine why this was there if maybe this was a way that they had marked their graves or if it was some part of ritual that they had used yeah. Ugh. And Serafine just simply stated no. He was actually going to use the wire to make a necklace out of Kilroy's vertebrae. 
You see, when he had killed him, he actually cut his spine open and threaded the wire through his spine so that once the body had finally decomposed, all Seraphine would have to do was just pull the wire out, revealing his new necklace. (gasps) What the fuck? It was also discovered at the time that his skull had been cut open and that his brain was gone. (gasps) Do we know what happened to it? Uh, We do, and I will tell you in a bit. It was also noticed that his legs had been amputated below the knees, and when questioning if this was part of the rituals, uh, Seraphine would just calmly go, no, it just made it easier to bury him. Seraphine would later explain that he and his brother had gone out to the bars, waiting around the thousands of American tourists looking for a victim that fit El Padrino's criteria. Ugh. And that's when they found Kilroy. They ended up following him to the park where he had stopped to go to the bathroom. And it was then when they flashed fake badges and told him that he was under arrest for public drunkenness because Mark was pretty hammered while this was going on. Right. So he gets in the back of their van where they drive a few blocks away and kind of park in this lot and wait for the other brothers that arrive in a separate car. So once Mark sees that a second car is pulling up, he's like, this doesn't really seem like something cops would do. And he gets kind of sketched out and he actually decides to make a run for it and escapes. (sighs) He got so close to the border, was nearly about to pass it when one of them shouted in English, freeze. And out of instinct, Kilroy stopped being the good person that he was. And the Hernandez brothers drove up to him, placed the handcuffs on his hands, put duct tape over his eyes and mouth, and put them in the back of their Suburban. It's from there where he would meet the caretaker to feed him his last meal and give him his last bit of drink, while the others waited for El Padrino to show up and give the okay to kill Mark. Wow. Serafine explained how first... They would all undress before entering the shed where they would perform their ritual. And from there, the high priest would offer up the sacrifice, either cutting the victim's throat or, as in Kilroy's case, taking off the top of his head with the machete. All right. He would explain that typically the victims were killed first and then mutilated, which... I hope that can give people some kind of peace to know that they weren't alive through that. That's what I was going to say about the whole knee thing and him saying it was just easier to bury him that way. It made me think, like, oh, hopefully that means he was amputated post-mortem. Yeah. But you never know. (laughs) Yeah, he said that typically they would kill him first, but it wasn't always the case. Yeah. It's from there that the victim's brains, heart, lungs and testicles were boiled in an iron kettle resulting in a (gasps) brew that would be passed among so members could drink and be sanctified oh my i can't even imagine how that would taste i don't even want to know don't ever Mm want to know i forgot about that bit (laughs) (sighs) i was just typing so fast fuck yeah guys it it's unfortunately only getting worse so Click off if this is too much. After that, the layman of the cult would actually bury the remains and get rid of the bodies, basically. Well, what was the whole fucking reason for this? 
yeah. for fucking mutilating and torturing these innocent people. Please tell me. Well, you see, they used Mark's brain in order to bring them intelligence and wisdom. Okay. They would strip off the muscles of a bodybuilder to bring them strength. Oh. They would use these body parts in a ritual, which I'll go into later, to essentially give them magical powers. So clearly disgusted and appalled by what was going on and by what the cops are hearing. This is when Seraphine notices the tension and makes a comment that would chill every officer to their core. Sticking the shovel in the dirt and leaning against it, Seraphine simply states, Well, I don't know why they're making such a big deal of this guy over here. You know, there's a body buried over there, and one over there, and one over there. Yeah. It was then that the cops looked around and noticed, yeah, there's some disturbed dirt around the ranch. And putting the Hernandez brothers and all the guys that they had arrested to work with the neighbor's backhoe, they uncovered 15 more bodies by the date of April 16th on that ranch. Oh my god. Two of which which would actually turn out to be renegade federal narcotics officers, Joaquin Manos and Miguel Garcia, and three of the men found would never be identified to this day. Wow. All of these bodies showed evidence that they had been tortured. Some had been decapitated, burned, castrated, and at least one of the victims had their heart removed. Ah. The officers that were too scared to search the shed would also, when they eventually did search it, would show signs of human sacrifice and torture. Inside of the shed, they would find machetes caked in blood and human tissue. There would be jars filled with blood, hair, and tissue, as well as a 55-gallon drum that was apparently used to boil the victim's flesh off of the bone. Oh, my God. Now, the central piece of this shed of horrors is the Nanganga. I know Ah. I said that wrong. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's a cast iron cauldron, which is the centerpiece of the Payo Mayombre religion. Okay. Payo Mayombre religion. And the belief of the Payo Mayombre religion is that the I'm so sorry, guys. I'm saying this so wrong. Would supply the Nanganga with sacrificial animals or bios or sticks, however you say that. And the cauldron would become alive at that point. Okay. So the sticks were meant to capture the spirits or spirit in the cauldron. And basically this would grant them whatever wish or whatever powers that they had desired. So was that sidekick right? The one that said she saw a cauldron? Yeah, it's really fucking creepy that that psychic said that and then Mark's body just happened to be found by a cauldron. It, there was also, um, I didn't add it, but I did read Henry... Lucas, I believe, uh, a really famous serial killer, two years before that this had happened, had drawn out a map really, like, 
almost exactly this area and said some cult-like shit is going to happen and a lot of people are going to die in this region. And it was like almost similar exactly where Mark Kilroy's body was found. So it's really weird how like people kind of predicted that this was happening. Yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah, it it adds a creepy element to it for sure. When they look inside the Nanganga, they see that it's containing like a stew that is brimming with rotten sludge. It includes blood. They see spiders, scorpions, a dead black cat, a turtle shell, bones, deer antlers, and a human brain. Ugh. One of which they would later confirm would be that of Mark Kilroy's. Ah. So according to the experts who had been brought onto the team, this is the Payomayombre, which what the fuck is that? It okay. is a Afro-Cuban religious practice of animals being sacrificed. Once they make the animal sacrifice, uh, they will be able to send a spirit off to do their bidding. Uh, they do this to make their businesses successful. They do this to make people fall in love with you. And for Serafine and his men, they would use this as a way to become invisible and to not be pierced by any bullets that cops would shoot at them. Okay, yeah. Well, I guess they fucking did the ritual wrong because they ended up getting caught. <laughs> <laughs> they, they used the wrong ingredients. <laughs> well, uh, Serafine would say, you know, like, El Padrino is the man. He's the guy who, he's the leader. He's the one who told us to do all of this. He's the one who told us, you know, the Nanganga asked for un Americano, un inteligente, un guapo. They wanted an American. How did they know he was smart? I don't know. They just fucking guessed. Because that's kind of, like, weird. Because he did end up being a really smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. I don't know. There is some witchcraft to this, I guess. Right? Like, they sensed it. Yeah. And it is at this time that Serafine would actually go on and tell them El Padrino's real name, which is Aldolfo Constanzo. Mm Mm-hmm. So who is Aldolfo Constanzo? Well, this asshole was born in Miami, Florida, on November 1st of 1962 to his mother, Delia Oro Gonzalez de Valle, who was a widowed Cuban immigrant. Now, she was only 15 at the time that Aldolfo was born. Mm. Uh, so, widowed and 15, <laughs> not knowing what to do, she yeah. moves back to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where she remarries and has another child. So, it's in Puerto Rico where Costanzo is actually baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, believe it or not, and mm. he serves as an altar boy. Uh, so, on the outside, it really appears that he has accepted the standard tenets of Roman faith and that him and his family are very pure, religious, normal, Mexican-American family. So when Constanzo turns 10, his family moves back to Miami. And I believe, like, within the first year that they're back in Miami, his stepfather would actually die. And when he died, he had left Delia a good amount of money, so they were apparently, like, pretty well off afterwards. Hmm. So they lived in a little city or a little like neighborhood in Miami called Little Havana. And it was the neighbors in Little Havana that would state that they noticed something weird about this Catholic family. And the rumors of a potential cult or witchcraft started swirling around. So you see, there were rumors in town that Constanzo's mother and grandmother were actually both priestesses of the Santeria religion, which is a blend of the Afro 
Cuban religion and certain elements of Christianity that's popular throughout the Caribbean. Okay. It's also popular in this religion for them to use animal and human bones in their rituals, though Santeria uh, can't can't sacrifice humans is a big no-no. It didn't help the rumors at the time that Delia, the mom, meets her new husband and father to her third child, who is the local drug trade and occult guy from down the block. Oh. And it also didn't help that she introduced her son, Aldolfo Constanza, Constanzo, to the Santeria cult when he was just nine. Because, yes, her neighbors were right. She was in a cult. Oh, <laughs> shit. Okay. So she would take Constanzo on trips uh, throughout Puerto Rico and Haiti and, like, all in between in order to teach him the art of voodoo. And it was in 1976 where he actually became an apprentice to a practitioner of the Bayo Mayombre. Wow. So the practitioner would teach him how to be successful in the career of profiting from evil. (gasps) Okay. And he would show this by showing him basically how to be a con artist and how to deal drugs. (laughs) But his philosophy with the drugs, though, is that let the non-believers kill themselves with drugs. We will profit from their foolishness. So this really set the line for Aldolfo, and you'll kind of see it later on, is that even though Aldolfo deals drugs, he is a big, like, no-drug guy. I don't know if okay. he drinks, but, like, doing drugs is not... It's, like, actually a big no-no in his cult, which he develops later I on, see. which we'll talk about. But They just sell use the drugs. drugs to, yeah. To basically make money. And, and that's what I guess he means by, like, the profiting off of evil. So that's a f- philosophy that Aldolfo really, like, carries with him for the rest of his life is, like, let the people be bad and kill themselves with the drugs and you can make money off of it which you'll see later on he really does kind of follow that to a t yeah it was also during this this time that uh delia or aurora they're they have so many names in their names (laughs) and (laughs) articles use different ones to name them but um the mom believed that her son had chosen or had believed that her son was actually the chosen one and had dedicated him to various gods and spirits and rituals that she uh, participated in with him and believed that he had really strong clairvoyant abilities, a.k.a. like he could talk to the dead. Oh. His mother would actually push him further into the cult when apparently he accurately predicted the assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981. Oh, did he? But, of course, it's his only successful premonition. (laughs) He was not able to predict his string of arrests on vandalism and theft charges, which one included the theft of a chainsaw. And it was not strong enough to predict his mother's arrest when the cops showed up at the door and caught her keeping 27 animals in her tiny apartment where the floors were covered in feces and blood. (gasps) Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh Because, you see... Because why... She would use these animals to groom her son to torture and kill them. Neighbors who angered her would wake up to headless goats or chickens on their doorstep, sometimes left by 14-year-old Constanzo himself. And she, fucking mother of the year, would praise him the crueler his actions were towards the children, or towards the animals. So the harder he tortured him, the harder he got praised by her. No. 
fucking give her number one mom of the year award right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She needs to be put in the pound. She fucking just needs to be put down. <laughs> <laughs> she even performed a final initiation on him when he turned 21, presenting him with his own nanganga to perform his own rituals. Oh, cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it was after this when he graduated high school and he did a short failed stint in junior college, which felt that. Mm-hmm. Altafo got uh, offered a modeling gig. Because fucking hate this. <laughs> Let me send you a photo of this guy. He's actually kind of hot, and I'm oh, uh, pretty God. upset about it. So yeah, he was a he was a good looking dude. <sighs> Thankfully, I'm not into witchcraft, but if it was some kind of other cult, I may have joined it. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, I do like his mullet thing he's got going on. It is the 80s. But it it looks like he's supposed to have a mustache and he doesn't. No, he probably just like the baby face. Yeah. Wait, but he was like only 20 though, right? He during this time he's 21. I don't know how okay. old he is in that photo. Oh. I don't want to give much say, away, so I'm not going to say like anything an, else. Okay. He looks kind of like an old, older 21-year-old, if if they are taken when he was that age. But who knows? Okay, keep going. I think he's... I'm a sucker for the dark-haired, dark-eyed boys. And then I see the little hairy chest, and I'm like, oh, I could cuddle on that. <laughs> but don't do it because he's in a cult. So, yeah, uh, he gets a modeling gig in 1983 which I believe he's 21 at the time, and finds himself in Mexico City. Now, while he's living in Mexico City, he, of course, discovers that the modeling gig doesn't pay shit, and so mm-hmm. he his primary source of income comes from being a pa- payero, or a payo mayombre priest. And he would basically offer fortune tellings, he would offer healings, he would do tarot card readings, and made a lot of his money that way, or his main yeah. income that way. So by mid-1984, Constanzo had moved to Mexico full-time. He was making enough money, and he decided to, as his mother would call it, search for new horizons. So he did Such this a by... a motherly way to put, like... I know. Unemployed or... <laughs> like, he lives on my couch. <laughs> so, such a nice way to put it. Yeah, she's like, go find new horizons. Get the fuck out of my house. So, he opens a shop in uh, Mexico City's Zona Rosa, better known as the Pink District, which is actually an area in Mexico City that is known to be really welcoming towards the LGBTQ community. Because hmm. you see, during his earlier years, uh, Aldolfo had actually, like, was discovering his sexuality, seeing what he liked, and discovered that he was bisexual, though he would later on describe that he had, like, a strong preference towards males. Okay. So once he got his shop in the Zona Rosa district, he began to get clients who were extremely wealthy and powerful, which also included some law enforcement officials and local drug dealers. Right. So Constanzo, taking that philosophy that he was kind of taught earlier on, really, really likes his drug dealer clientele. He prefers them over everyone else. And his reasoning behind this is because he says that is where the real money is. Ooh. Which, yeah, I guess I could see yeah, that. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and it's probably cash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> not not taxed. That shit ain't taxed. Like, 
No checks. No W-2 forms in here, Betty. They didn't have Venmo back then, so. It was also here in Mexico City where he would actually start to recruit the first of his disciples. So he had met Martin Quintana Rodriguez. He also met a psychic by the name of Jorge Montes. And he also met Omar Oria, who had been obsessed with the occult since he was 15. And all three of them had met Aldolfo and just fell into the allurement that he brought and the cult you know big open arms are you lonely here's a cult yeah come fit right in in. yeah and i mean costanzo was just like a really charming guy and he was i think he was handsome so maybe Mm -hmm. other people thought he was handsome too so they just fell for it he would even offer further allurement when he seduced rodriguez and oria to become his lovers and so he would claim one as his man, and he would claim the other as his woman. And he would claim, like, the roles would switch, kind of just depending on Constanzo's romantic whim. Okay. So, like, not one set man was the man or the woman. It, it right. Would switch. Sounds kind of like a fun situation, if that's what you're into. Yeah, I mean, if it's like, <laughs> they're, not doing any, they're not doing anything bad yet. I mean, aside from animals, yeah. torture. Yeah, but. I'm talking purely <laughs> about their relationship little situation um, yeah oh it's dynamics is the word yeah. i'm looking for a little polyamorous moment but yeah it was they were having a good time so he ended up getting a place with rodriguez and oria and began to be making a lot of money at this time and making a huge following like we wish we could mm. get this fucking following right Damn. and he would do fortune tellers he would do limpias he would do ritual cleaning or limpias is ritual cleanings and um he would get clients to sometimes pay up to four thousand five hundred dollars for a single ceremony what the fuck and this is an 80s money yeah i don't even know what that is but it's a lot what the fuck Later on, when they would find Constanzo's journal, he actually had, like, a menu of his... It's not funny, but he would have a menu of his spiritual sacrifice animals. Mm. He had it listed that roosters would cost $6 a head, goats were 30 boa constrictors, 450 adult zebras would go for $1,100, and lion cubs would go for $3,100. Oh my. Yeah. I know. The whole point behind that, I guess, and like the escalation that would later go is like goats better than a rooster. Well, a a lion cub is better than a goat. Well, a human is essentially better than a a lion cub. Top shelf, baby. There was even a dealer that would pay him $40,000 for magical services that would go over a three-year period. Huh. Yeah. So okay. he was making it. He made most of his money, obviously, by charming the drug dealers to make their hitmen and uh, dealers invisible to the police, as well as being bulletproof. It had even gotten to a point where Constanzo would actually help them schedule the shipments of their drugs and the meetings of when the dealers and, I guess, their lowers would meet, based right. on his predictions. Okay. But, of course, this is all fucking bullshit, because magic does not exist. Does it? Uh, I don't know. 
at least did. not this magic, because you know what? Constanza was not giving them little protection spells. He was simply bribing the law enforcement officers that were his clientele with some of the payment that the drug dealers had given them so that officials would protect his clients. Of course. So much witchcraft going on up in here. (laughs) Pathetic. (laughs) It's fucking sad. Uh, He was even such a nice guy that he decided to pose as a DEA agent to claim a Coke dealer supply only to sell it back to the police for (laughs) $100,000. Good for him. I know. I mean, it's fucking like, if you can get away with it, man, because I mean, Mexico has always been a country that has a rich, rich legacy in magic. I mean, yes, people in Mexico I thought you were just going to say rich legacy. And no. I also thought you were going to say corruption, which is all just true. It is. It's all true. I do go into uh, detail a little bit behind the corruption of the cops later on. Um, but, I mean, it's just people in Mexico are very... There's a huge dynamic fusion between the Christianity or Catholicism and the Indian religions uh, The that the... Brujos or the shamans had like a very common belief that this was real and this was actually something that existed in the world, whether we believe it or not. But they really did. So it to us, it seems like mumbo jumbo. But to the drug dealers, to his clients, to even the most high up officials, I mean, you even look at Benitez when he found the shed, he completely told the cops to stop. Don't even, we need to get someone here to cleanse the shed before we right. step foot. I mean, like this community is very engulfed in the idea that yes, this magic does exist. Something evil can come from these practices, which I mean, I do agree with because it led to the deaths of, I don't know how many people. Right. Hell yeah. Yeah. So by mid-1985, him and his three disciples decide that they need to start raiding graveyards in Mexico City in search for human uh, human bones for him to start his nanganga. Nanganga. (laughs) And it was here where his disciples would actually see him making the sacrifices into the nanganga and would state how he would go into these trance-like states... And almost as if he was channeling a spirit, he would start to talk in an unfamiliar language. Okay. And even more so, his continents would completely change. Like, he would act like a wild man. He would move wildly, just seeming like he was actually possessed by some kind of demonic force. And from there, he would demand what sacrifice needed to be made next. Okay. Creepy. Yeah, it's all very weird. So just the speaking in tongues and like weird devil languages, that's what yeah. gets me. It's- yeah, but it I I mean it doesn't get the locals in Mexico City. In fact, when they hear about Constanzo's abilities to do this, it actually works in his favor and he starts to gain even more of a spectrum of followers from physicians to real estate speculators, to fashion models. There were even several 
they use another word. I'm not really comfortable using it, so I'm just going to say transgender nightclub performers. Yeah. But if you know the term that they used in the 80s, that's the term that they used. I just don't feel comfortable using it. Yeah. Uh, so their cult had even gotten so popular that four federal judicial police officers joined the group. Oh. So one of them, Salvador Garcia, was actually the commander in charge of the narcotics investigation and another was a retired federal who used to lead the Mexican branch of Interpol. Wow. So some high up there motherfuckers. Yeah. Corrupt, 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 corrupt. Can you hear the corruptness going on? Because I can hear it too. Corrupt. <laughs> so yeah, before you get too shocked that like all of this is going on, you have to understand that uh, mordida or bribery is very common in Mexico, and basically everyone who is law enforcement is susceptible to some form of it. Like even the highest positions have their price, and some of them even work as hitmen for smugglers. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so I'm. It's it gets pretty deep. Uh, deeper than cash ties, actually. So in and out of their uniform, some of these officials worshipped Constanzo like he was an actual god. Wow. Yeah. So by 1986, one of his followers, Florentino Ventura, would actually introduce him to the Calzada family, who were intertwined with the drug dealing. They were like one of the biggest cartels in the area during that time. Wow. So he obviously won them over with his charm. And by 1987, he had, like, winning over them and with all of his current clients, he had such a large clientele. He could afford a $60,000 condominium in Mexico. He bought a fleet of cars, one which included an $80,000 Mercedes Benz. So, I mean, he was getting it. Hell yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe we should go into that business. (laughs) Uh, well, we should, but the allurement of the many, the followers in the dark magic, as well as the need to satisfy clients that had Uzi guns that could kill him if he didn't up his ante, he decided that he needed to start feeding his Nanganga human sacrifices. And this was just to put on a more impressive spectacle. So, like, his clients would be like, oh, he's sacrificing a human for me. Like, whoa, this guy's really got it going on. I need to pay him. he's the real deal. He is the real fucking deal. In fact, they found it very, like, appealing that he had such a willingness to kill total strangers and even close friends. Like, friends (laughs) in his group with no remorse. Mm, mm -hmm. In fact, the following years... I guess he actually started to maybe believe in his magic a little bit because he went to the Calzada family and basically told them that his magic was the sole reason for the family's success and survival. Mm-hmm. And in April of 1987, he actually went up to the family and demanded a partnership in exchange for everything that he had done for them. Obviously, they laughed in his face and told him <laughs> to get the fuck out, which boy. <laughs> At which point, Constanza was like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, which point at which point (laughs) he's like guys i'm so sorry i had i chugged some wine before i got here so fucking sorry i just got done throwing up (laughs) don't make it a big deal i'm just i'm gonna go back to doing what i was doing don't even worry about it 
and everything seemed chill. That is until April 30th when Guillermo, Calzada, and six others in the household would vanish without a trace. Okay. It's a lot of people to just vanish. Mm-hmm. So it would be reported on May 1st that everyone in that household would be missing. And when police entered the property, they had found melted candles and other evidence that some kind of ceremony had taken place inside of the Calzada's office. Oh, my gosh. Now, it wouldn't be until six days later when the mutilated remains started to be fished out of the Zumpango River. (gasps) Seven corpses in total over the course of a week would be found. (sighs) All of them were either missing fingers, toes, ears, hearts, or their sex organs. Oh my god. One of the spines had actually been removed from one of the bodies, while two others had been missing their brains. Mm. And the parts that the cops had never found were speculated to be stuffed into Constanzo's Naganga. Ew. God, that... (laughs) It's bad. It's (laughs) It's <laughs> I know, I kept saying, Mom, how do you pronounce it? And she's like, just say cauldron. I'm like, you know, my ancestors wouldn't appreciate that. <laughs> Good for you. Good for me trying to stick to my heritage. Because last time I tried to say it, that was I literally tried to say it and it came out that way, so I'm just not going to try again. So in July of 1987... A man by the name of Salvador Garcia would actually introduce Constanzo to another drug-running family. Now, these were the Hernandez brothers. Okay. So, you have Elio and Oviro Hernandez, and they basically run the Santa Elena Ranch, which is a well-known stopping point on the illegal drug highway, quote-unquote. And when he met the brothers... They were in a little bit of a pickle at the time. Their leader, Saul Hernandez Rivera, had actually just recently been cut down by a machine gun in front of a restaurant in an assassination hit set out by his drug rivals. Oh. Now, we did have Serafine Sr., Saul's older brother, not the same Serafine as before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, now, he wanted to come in and take over the brother's business. But he would be useless as not even a month later, he would be arrested in the U.S. after getting caught trying to land a load of dope out on an airstrip in Grimes County. Of course. So at this point, the ranch is kind of like up in the air or what's the word? The ranch is just kind of like freaking out. They don't really know what to do. So from (laughs) here, Elio. Yeah, they're in (laughs) fucking shambles. So from here, Elio decides that he's going to be the one to seize power because he's, I guess, the one that seems to have the most, uh, the same ruthlessness and type of ambition as Saul, the original leader, had. Yeah. But it wouldn't be enough to solve the family's current dilemmas. And they found themselves kind of like drowning, just really struggling. They were losing money. They really didn't know what to do. And... Hope was starting to be lost for them. Running dry. Well, they were running dry until a now 26-year-old Constanzo introduced himself and convinced them to let him use his powers by saying the payo mayombre could make them invisible and even bulletproof. Oh. Now, the Hernandez brothers were like, yeah, okay. They 
did they believed in the witchcraft and the occult and these powers that this man was saying that he had they really wanted to believe in it so they decided to give it a test run why not and once they started to see that their money was increasing and that their shipments were actually starting to be successful they a thousand percent believed yes constanzo is the real deal and he freaking just <laughs> made us invisible and bulletproof like what the fuck oh yeah dude let's go out and potty so <laughs> with the proof and the pudding the hernandez brothers had agreed to give constanzo ownership of half of the hernandez's drug operation hmm. It was also during this time, at the end of July... Hmm? It's kind of a lot. Half. Yeah, of the whole drug operation? Yeah, that's a lot. I I guess he... It would have... I don't know. He's a charmer. He was probably like, you would be at 0% if it weren't for me, so... Right. Better than nothing. It was shortly after meeting the Hernandez brothers that, at the end of July, Constanza would meet another person. Sarah oh. Albrete. <gasps> Sarah! She even Sarita. spells it the same as you. Really? Sarita? Yeah. Okay. So Miss Sarita, no, Miss Sarah, yeah. uh, is a, she is a Mexican national and she, with resident alien status in the United States. So she's okay. um, going to school there. She mm-hmm. is an honor student, a cheerleader. She was even a nominee for the Who's Who at Texas Southmost College in Brownsville, Texas. And she was pursuing a degree in physical education. Oh, cool. Yeah. The students on campus would describe her as friendly. She was super outgoing, deeply involved with extracurricular activities, a super pretty girl. Like, everyone who met her was just like totally smitten with her. But you see, Miss Sarah lived a double life. Did she? As soon as she crossed that border into Mexico, a whole new Sarah would appear. Ooh. Because, you see, she uh, she liked the narcotics. She was actually dating a Brownsville drug smuggler named Gilberto Sosa and even dabbled in a little black magic herself. Really? So when she was talking to investigators later on, she described about how she had... Or she talked about how she had met a witch in Mexico that taught her the arts of the payo mayombre. She would further go on to explain how she was inducted during a cleansing ritual, at which point she was cleaned, dressed in all white, and I guess, like, soaked in some water. I kind of forgot the details on it. Yeah, so weird. Yeah, but after... (laughs) I remember this part, though. (laughs) After which, they took her out, would cut her along her spine, her calf, her hands and her thighs until the white of her outfit turned red. Oh my god. So she a freaky bitch. Wow. And it was during one of her trips into Matamoros where she would bump into the handsome Constanzo. Mm-hmm. Young black magic lovers. You gotta remember she does have a BF in case we forgot like oh, two yeah. bullet points ago. Shit. Uh, but she don't give a fuck because she still no. sleeps with him. <laughs> she still mm. sleeps with Constanzo after falling for his charm when he wooed her with lines about how she was so special and significant, stating that she even shared the same birthday, September 6th, with his mom. Oh, how cute. I love being compared to mom. It makes me want to hop right into bed. <laughs> so, 
they obviously had sex. Um, <laughs> after they hooked up, Constanzo anonymously called her boyfriend Sosa <gasps> and told him that his girlfriend had basically slept with him. Holy shit. That's bold. Basically caused the breakup between Sosa and Sarah. Oh. Yeah. So now that Sarah was single, she Mm -hmm. didn't have anywhere to turn to. She's one of those girls that apparently really needed a man in her life. She decided to become fully enveloped in Constanzo's world. He had also told her, I'm like making a little joke. He had told her at the time that he was like very much into the witchcraft. He was a healer. He did cleansings and whatnot. And her being a part of the dark art, that really drew her to him as well. So that was one of the major causes for her to go in and kind of, uh, to go in and get enveloped in Constanzo's world. She was really she saw how big of a following he had and how popular he was and she was just really attracted to that side of it yeah and as soon as she became enveloped in the world she moved her way up the ranks fairly quick being right by his side at one point she was even dubbed the madrina or the godmother or pet witch and she was basically used to lure male victims for human sacrifice okay but she wasn't there for the actual sacrifice, though. She would just lure them. <laughs> so, okay. Constanzo right. was a bit of a fucking misogynist and would talk about how uh, he didn't allow Sarah into the s- ritual ceremony because it would bring bad vibes. <laughs> and he didn't believe that women should be there when they were practicing magic. Okay, so was she the only woman? Yeah, apparently. They were huh. all the rest all the rest were males. I do believe she was the only woman that joined okay. this cuz everyone else that they arrest from what I read were males, but it could be that another girl was there. It's just in the names that I read in the rest all the rest were males. Yeah. Okay. Mhm. So yeah, he, he was a little bit of a dick. <laughs> a bit. One of the times that she used her services she had invited a guy that lived in brownsville over to her house where she lived also in brownsville where she went to school to hang out you know little netflix and chill before netflix was invented Mm -hmm. vhs and chill. yeah (laughs) but as soon as he got there seraphine hernandez the 20 year old who i don't i'm sorry i don't think i mentioned seraphine was like the younger younger brother of the Elio and Overa. So he was like part of the Hernandez group. Oh, okay. or I think he was like a friend or a cousin or something like that. But he, okay. he, I think he's like Seraphine uh, Jr. You know what I mean? Because there was a yeah. Seraphine Sr. Mm-hmm. So Seraphine, the 20 year old from Brownsville, pops back up. So this is him. <laughs> Sorry, that probably sounded so confusing. No, I got you. I mean, I think I do. Yeah. Showed up to Sarah's house and helped kidnap the guy that she had invited over to the house and from there they would both take him to the ranch where they would later sacrifice and give his heart to the nganga and it was from here surprisingly enough where the rituals took an even more gruesome twist really that's possible but didn't think so so on may 28th of 1988 we have a drug dealer by the name of hector de la fuente and a farmer by the name of Moises Castillo. 
Now the Nanganga, just for whatever reason, chose these two unfortunate souls, and both of them would be executed by gunfire on the ranch. Oh my god. But according to Castillo, this was not enough, and these sacrifices were actually disappointment. A disappointment to him. (laughs) Yeah. So it was then where he decided, no, this isn't enough. He forced his disciples out onto the streets and said, we need another. And it was where they would find, kidnap, and dismember Ramon Esquivel, who was a transgender man in the town. Wow. They dumped Esquivel's remains on a public street corner for anyone to find. What the fuck? All the other ones were, like, buried and... Yeah, for the most part. What the fuck? At least the ones that they know about, you know? Yeah. We'll get into that later. Uh, So Constanzo's cockiness would only grow from here when he narrowly escaped a police raid that was done on his trap house in Houston in June of 1988. But it was at that trap house that law enforcement would seize a lot of occult paraphernalia, as well as the largest shipment of cocaine that that city had caught to date. Oh, wow. Like, for 1988. I don't know if they caught a bigger one now, but... At that time, I mean, still, biggest shit in the eighties. Coke was yeah. big, and uh, Coke for being was late real big. <laughs> yeah, that says a lot. Mm-hmm. It was also on August twelfth of that year that Avito, one of the Hernandez brothers, and his two-year-old son were actually kidnapped by rival narcotics dealers. Mm. And terrified, the Hernandez family turned to Constanzo for help. So that night. Constanzo said that there was going to be another human sacrifice at the Rancho Santa Elena, but the hostages were released unharmed on August 13th, and Aldolfo took full credit for their safe return. That is what the article says. I really tried to get more detail because that sounds really confusing to me. I don't know if he took hostages from the narcotics dealers who kidnapped the Hernandez brother and his two-year-old son and let them go as a sign of like mercy so they could do kind of like a switch off but however that worked that's that is the only sentence that I can find about this kidnapping but it did end in the release of a veto and probably his two-year-old son because he does end up living okay yeah. So in my from what context clues, I'm assuming that uh, Aldolfo had maybe kidnapped some of the rival narcotics dealers who had something to do with the kidnapping of Avito, and from there, when he released them, it led to the safe release of Avito. I don't know. All right. It's a little confusing. I was yeah. really. It could have been all like a, a trap or a setup, like not a trap, but a setup. Um, like a fake yeah, like Aldolfo. Kinda. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know, and it's even like <laughs> I forgot to say this earlier, but I thought it was super weird how the mom's husbands just all kind of died mysteriously. Yeah, ew. I'm like maybe she had something to do with that. I don't know, but it's death follows this family a lot. It's very, very, very I've weird. Noticed. Yeah, yeah. So either way, that ends up happening with like his close one of his close confidants so after performing this fake 
sacrificial ritual and getting the Avito brother back, Constanzo is relished in his newfound power. And he really starts to ignore the signs that, like, maybe his magic isn't what he thinks it is. Uh, because on September 17th, one of his followers, Florentine Ventura, the one who had introduced him to all of those drug smugglers, yeah. actually committed suicide and oh. would take his wife and his friend along with him. Oh, my God. But he kind of was just, like, ignoring the red flags a little bit. He His status as a god was so solidified in that moment. His followers would come more and more, and they were willing to kill for him. They would kill strangers. I mean, they would even kill their own family or friends, if that's oh. what it meant. No. On November of 1988, Constanzo would pick his own disciple, Jorge Gomez, to be sacrificed <gasps> after he was accused of snorting cocaine. Ah, Okay. Going going back to Aldolfo's philosophy that he got later on, uh, killing people, no problemo. Do whatever you want, hombre. Take drugs. Uh-uh, not in this cult. Not You're going to cool. die. Not mm. cool. You were going straight to the Nganga for that one. Interesting. So, yeah, it's very uh, weird, the dynamic and, like, kind of Casanzo's beliefs at the time for how the cult should be ran and the rules within it, but... If you take drugs, you can bet your butt that your butt is going to end up on the menu. Yeah. Ooh. A month later, the Hernandez family would even further tie themselves with Constanzo as Avito, the guy who got kidnapped, so he did end up surviving, and he would be, become a full-fledged cult member after he completed his prayer and bloodletting to the Nganga. The next killing that happened wouldn't come until February 14th of 1989. And this is when you we have a competing uh, smuggler in the area by the name of Ezekiel Luna, who was tortured to death on the Santa Elena Ranch. Mm. You would also have two other dealers, Ruben Garza and Ernesto Diaz, that were just at the wrong fucking place at the wrong fucking time and had stumbled upon the torturing of Ezekiel Luna and had found themselves to be tossed into the Nganga as well. The Hernandezes would even further prove their loyalty to Constanzo when on February 25th, Avito joined a hunting party for fresh meat at Constanzo's request, even going as far as killing his 14-year-old cousin, Jose Garcia, in the process. (gasps) No. Yeah. So you have the killing of disciple members... You have the killing of disciple members' families. You have the killing of complete strangers. I mean, no one is safe in this cult. Yeah. Ugh. At all. Mm-mm. And it's like, I don't even think that they were able to prove that the dude did drugs. It was just like a rumor. Right. So they killed him off of a Ugh, rumor. Fuck not that. even valid evidence. Yeah. So, of course, on March 13th, 1989, we have yet another sacrifice where yet another victim would be killed at the ranch. But again, Constanzo was gravely disappointed because, in his words, the victim did not scream or plead for mercy in his approved style. It was then disgruntled that he turned to his Nganga and, in prayer, hurt that the Nganga wanted un americano. Mm-hmm. So one of the guys on the show, Deadly Colts, his name was uh, Norberto Martinez, and he was actually a classmate of Sarah's, had actually been invited to a party 
during that fateful week of spring break where Mark Kilroy disappeared. Ooh. According to Martinez, uh, he Sarah came up to him and said, hey, I'm having a party over at my house. It would be so cool if you came. We would party. It would be a lot of fun. It'd be great. He goes, thankfully, he said, um, you know, I'm not much of a drinker. I said, like, maybe next time. And she said that, you know, she was pretty adamant, was trying to get him to go. And at the end of the day, he was like, you know, maybe once spring break's over, we can go. It's just... I'm good right now. I'm just going to enjoy my spring break, hang out with family. It'll be cool. Not realizing the severity of like what he, not realizing like what he just narrowly missed. Yeah. Potentially being sacrificed to the Mm -hmm. Nganga. So, (laughs) yeah. So since Sarah had lost Martinez and they, she had basically like failed in that little mission, Serafine decided to take it into his own hands and this is where Mark Kilroy would be picked up for the sacrifice mm. that week in Matamoros, Mexico. Ugh. So obviously the sacrifice took place. And just two weeks later, they would commit another butchery of Sarah Aldotre, Aldrete's old boyfriend, Gilberto Sosa. Mm. But it would be Kilroy's disappearance that marked the beginning of the end for Constanzo's homicidal fucking family. Because <laughs> you see, Mark Kilroy was not the typical drug smuggler or drug dealer or person in Mexico that just didn't seem to matter to police officers. Right. He was a dude with a family. He was an American who had people that would miss him. He also happened to be white. And unfortunately, if it hadn't been at the request of this Nanganga, that this cult may have never been caught. So now that Mark Kilroy's body had been found and the El Padrino had been named, the hunt for Aldolfo Constanzo was on. So thanks to Serafine's confession, police knew that he was traveling with Sarah. And the first thing they did was uh, raid his luxury home and... Antizapan, which is right outside of Mexico City, on April 17th. And it was at this luxury home that they discovered stockpiles of gay porn and also a ritual chamber that was hidden in the house. At this point, this is the time before cell phones, before internet, before debit card transactions. Mm -hmm. So the police had really feared at this point that the couple had fled to the States and very well just like fell off the grid. And it was very worrisome that they would have a hard time ever finding them again. Yeah. Obviously, when news of the gruesome discovery at the Rancho Santa Elena had been told, it made headlines around the globe. I mean, everyone was so intrigued with what was going on in this town in Mexico. And with the news, sightings of Constanzo and his priestess would flood from locations everywhere, some even saying as far as Chicago they were seeing this couple. Now, I just want to point out before I go any further that in one article that I did read, it did go into about how officials were being a little weird at the time, which I did want to point out. So there was a U.S. Customs agent by the name of Oren Neck who was crisp and to the point as the article put it basically saying that like drugs were the only reason that this happened like he emphasized that drugs were the sole purpose behind 
everything that was going on. Right. There, we also had Lieutenant George Gavito of the Cameron County Sheriff Department, who was uh, Ryan Laconic, which means he didn't talk a lot. Uh-huh. And I know I had to Google it. <laughs> and, um, but I mean, he loved to talk on the show. That's, he was like yeah. the main talker on the Dudley. Uh, I thought that cult. was like his name at first. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but the one of the things that I did find weird in the article that I read was when the uh, when a reporter asked how the Federals had gotten a confession so quickly, Gavito, instead of pointing out how Serafine was so open and honest with him, simply pointed to a bottle of mineral water, which apparently Federals like to shake and squirt up uh, the noses of reluctant witnesses, I guess, to get information from them. Huh. Basically yeah. like waterboarding, but not. Pretty much. And I'm like... That didn't happen. So why are you saying that? It's just, it's yeah. very weird. Um, but I mean, there was also drama on the Mexican side as well. So like I had mentioned, fucking Mexico's a little corrupt sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but cops can easily be persuaded. And that was one of the fears that they had with this case. So Benitez was a new breed of federal authority in Mexico. He was young, he was educated, tough, and he was moderately honest. <laughs> Don't know what that means. <laughs> I mean, um, shit, moderate is okay, I guess. It's better than nothing. <laughs> right. But they described him as having a perfect Indian face, Bambi eyes, and a shaggy haircut, and that he usually mm. wore jeans and a Philadelphia Eagles football jacket. Now... What made everything so sketchy and why people were so hesitant about this is that Mexican officials had discovered that Benitez's predecessor and his, like, top, top, top officer had squirreled away $5.5 million in cash and jewelry and confiscations and bribes. Oh. Mm-hmm. The violent border town in Matamoros was considered the end of the road for the Comandante, but Benavides took this assignment and he had such an unexpected zeal, as the article had put it, that he really tried to turn this town around. He drove an increase in the drug arrests that were happening at the time and was really one of the only cops to try and make an effort to really try and get the drugs off the streets. So he... He didn't have a good leader, but when he came into the position of leader, he did his best to make up for all the shit that happened before him. Good. Well, good for him. But one of the things that Benitez did that I was kind of off-put by was that he didn't seal off the crime scene completely. And he even had the media, like... So I was saying earlier that if you watch the Deadly Colts episode, there's a lot of footage of the interviews and especially like the digging up of the bodies and whatnot. If you don't like those images, please do not watch the show because they do show it. But they would have the men that they arrested digging the graves and then they would have men with machine guns pointed at the guys digging the graves and kind of like behind the guys holding the machine guns are reporters wearing masks and whatever so they don't smell the rotting stench and like yeah. holding their cameras. And really huh. the only warning that these reporters were given were don't get in between those guys and the machine guns because if something happens you're going to get shot. Yeah. Like ah. no like hey guys don't don't come near the crime scene. Don't do this. Right. Don't leave your fingerprints or your DNA. It was just kind of like 
it's not sealed off. Anyone can like, walk hey around guys, here or it whatever. It smells and don't go in front of the guns. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So that's just the only thing that I had to note about the investigation process that I thought was interesting. Right. But, well, that's always important. So Yeah. And this was happening, obviously, while they were on the lookout trying to figure out where these two had went. Uh, and it would be later on that cops would find that Aldolfo and Sarah had actually con- obtained fake IDs in the United States. And from wherever they got the fake IDs, drove to McAllen, Texas, and boarded a plane. <laughs> and the smart fucking people that they are headed back to Mexico City, okay. where he, Sarah, and two other disciples would stay in a small apartment. Uh- you have you can go anywhere. Why the fuck? <laughs> like, go, go be free balling in Australia. Like, go be free balling mm-hmm. anywhere else. Why do you go? Like, do somewhere else in the United States. Why are you going to the one spot where everyone is looking for you? It's just right. so fucking weird. I don't even know. It's it's the strangest thing. I'd say drugs, but they don't apparently use them. I don't fucking know. <laughs> ego of- yeah it's just the ego of it all he he literally thought that he was a god it in the beginning it it really seems like constanzo knew that he was conning people i mean like the payo mayombre uh, priest that he had taught under had taught him how to become a con man and taught him all of these things so it's weird how later on he starts to kind of really believe the magic even though starting off he knew like i'm not making these people invisible i have to pay off officials so to make them invisible basically it's it's very uh i don't know where the shift in his mind went but it really seems like in the end he really did believe that he was this all-powerful being So police would search various homes and properties that Constanzo had in Mexico City, but could not find the couple, no matter how hard they tried. They put up wanted posters, they offered rewards, weeks would go by, and no luck. And cops were starting to get really worried. Again, this is the 80s, where it's really hard to track someone. Like, if you want to go and disappear off the face of the earth, it was pretty easy for you to, back then, go ahead and do that. Mm Mm-hmm. In a desperate attempt to try and find these two, they went to a local anthropologist who specialized in the Centaria and Payo Mayombre. And Payo Mayombre. I really hope I haven't been... It's fine. It's fine. And thank God that they went to this guy because he actually had a really good idea. And what he told the cops to do was to take a little thing of gasoline and burn the shack. But more importantly to burn the Nanganga, to metaphorically stoke Constanzo out of hiding. Yes. And so, with a TV crew filming them, they did just that. They showed as the Brujo poured gasoline around the shed, and how once he got to the Nanganga, he put a photo of Aldolfo Constanzo in it, poured the gasoline on top, and then set it ablaze. Oh my god. Now, essentially, what the anthropologist was doing, putting the photo of Constanzo in the Nganga, is essentially once it burned and once he tipped it over and let all of the shit pull pull out, it would essentially reverse all of the protection and all of the spells that he had made making this thing alive. Right. 
Now, like little reverse magic there. So Constanzo, who has been in an apartment with Sarah and his two disciples, one of which whom was his male lover, was watching TV and saw his Nanganga being burned. And he blipped out just as the anthropologist predicted. Like right on the fucking money with that one. He knew what he was doing because in his mind, he believed like, my power, this godly power that I have is now gone. Mm-hmm. I don't have it anymore. I'm he melting. Pst- <laughs> I'm melting. <laughs> he was freaking out. On May 2nd, um, actually seeing like the unfolding of Constanzo happening, Sarah, in a desperate attempt to save herself, throws a note out the window stating, Please call the judicial police and tell them that in this building are those that they are seeking. Give them the address, fourth floor. Tell them that a woman is being held hostage. I beg for this because what I want most is to talk or they're going to kill the girl. Oh my God. I thought she was the girl. I I think maybe at this point she thinks maybe she may be sacrificed. I don't really know. Yeah. Either way, she, or what I'm thinking is she is trying to because obviously this is the 80s like for whatever reason we don't see women as being able to commit evil acts maybe she was thinking that if i get this note out i can make it seem like i'm the victim here i was lured into this and i had no say and they forced me into it yada 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 who knows well a passerby does end up finding the note and he reads it but he decides to keep it to himself because he thinks it's a joke ah don't do this guys at least like call the non-emergency line and say hey i found this note who do i talk to if i want to like i don't know it's just you shouldn't take something like that as a joke i feel like because uh, oh like i have no idea what i would do in that situation i mean i i hope i do the right thing whatever that is i would think of just calling like non-emergency and being like hey i found this note and it sounds scary can someone come and see if it's emergency yeah i don't know yeah. that's what i would think I, it de- also depends on what the note says right i don't know we'll see but yeah no one came <laughs> <laughs> but on may 6th police would arrive to the to an apartment building responding to calls about a disturbance and about a familiar female in the area Ooh. You see, I don't know why. So she threw a note out the window, but she had gone shopping after she threw the note out the window, apparently. (laughs) Because in one of the articles that said that during a shopping trip, or it was in the uh, documentary, it had said that during a shopping trip to the grocery store, someone had actually saw Sarah and recognized her from the poster and decided to call police at that point and be like, oh my gosh, she's in this area. You need to come here. So... I mean, I guess his power really was gone because people are starting to see Sarah now. Right. It also didn't help Constanzo that in the midst of his obvious freakout and increased paranoia, he gathered cash onto the stove and decided to burn it, as well as opening the windows and throwing coins and remaining cash out onto the street below. Okay. So when when cops get the call of like, hey, there's a girl in this area, and then they get another call about, hey, there's this guy throwing money out the street. <laughs> Making it rain. It's 
kind of easy for them to pinpoint which complex right. Constanzo's at. So seeing the arrival, knowing that these police officers are coming and are about to barge into his door, Constanzo begins shooting at them with a fucking Uzi. What is that? It's like a fucking... Let me Google it. It is the family of an Israeli open bolt blowback operated submachine gun. It was one of the first weapons to use a telescoping bolt design, which allows the magazine to be housed in the pistol grip for a shorter weapon. It's just like this really short looking machine gun. It's like what uh, what you imagine the mobsters using when yeah. uh, Al Pacino say hello to my little friend. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that kind of gun is what I yeah, imagine. I see. It. So, yeah. yeah. So he just brings out this fucking Uzi and starts spraying the cops <laughs> with bullets and the cops would go and return fire. And this would lead to a 45 minute long exchange of fire. Damn. And I have no idea how this happened, but somehow, by the grace of God, only one officer was wounded in that exchange. Wow. Not even killed. He was just wounded. Yeah. Yeah, good. Thank God. So after the 45-minute long exchange of fire, Constanzo, realizing that his fate was sealed and that he was about to be arrested handed his weapons to one of his disciples, a cultist named Alvaro de Leon Valdez, who was a hitman that they had called El Dubby, and he gave El Dubby very specific orders. So Dubby would later recall to the police that he told me to kill him and Martin, which is Quintana, his male lover. Mm-hmm. I told him I couldn't do it, but he hit me in the face and threatened me that everything would go bad for me in hell. Then he hugged Martin, and I stood in front of them and shot them with a machine gun. Oh, my God. Once Constanzo and Quintana were found dead, police stormed the apartment, finding and arresting El Debi and El Sarah Altrete. <gasps> so in the aftermath of the raid, 14 cultists were indicted on various charges, including multiple murder, weapons, and narcotic violations, as well as conspiracy and obstruction of justice. In mm. August of 1990, El Debi was convicted of killing Constanzo and Quintana and drew a 13-year prison term for the murders. Hmm. Cultus Juan Fragosa and Jorge Montes were both convicted in the murder of Ramon Esquivel and were sentenced 35 years each for that. Omar Oria, who was convicted in the same case against Ramon Esquivel, had actually died of AIDS before he could be sentenced. Okay. So finally, we have Sarah Aldrete, who was acquitted of Constanzo's murder, but was sentenced to a six-year term on a conviction of criminal association. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't worry, though. Don't, don't get too upset. Don't get too upset. It gets good. Okay. Nearing the end of that sentence in 1994, just when she was about to get out of jail, love this, her long-delayed trial on multiple murder charges brought up another conviction, and she was given 60 more years <gasps> in prison. Run, jail, bitch! Do we know what that was, the conviction? The um, I, I believe it was 
the murder charges of her luring the men. Okay. So, mm-hmm. like, one of the bodybuilder whose muscles were stripped, she mm-hmm. had actually lured him to his death. And oh. um, the Brownsville guy that she had lured to the death by inviting her to the home. And honestly, you, it, you just don't know what else she was right. capable of. I'll get into it a little bit down the okay. road. So. In June of 1989, Martin Quintana's sister told police that Aldolfo's first madrina was actually still at large, and she was practicing her blood magic in Guadalajara. And from jail before he died, I guess like while he was in holding, awaiting his prison term, his prison sentence, Omar Oria had said, I don't think that the religion will end with us because it has a lot of people in it. They have found a temple in Monterey that isn't even related to us. This will continue. Oh, shit. In the end, the Kilroy family was able to achieve closure for the disappearance of Mark Kilroy. James Kilroy, Mark's father, said that I don't feel any anger at all, to be honest with you. Adding that he hoped if and when his killers got to heaven, they would find his son and apologize. Mm -hmm. Helen Kilroy also asked people to pray for her son's murderers. Wow. So, yeah, a lot, like, way bigger people. Yeah, than, I would not I mean, I, be that, like, I would not say, I would say, calm fuck you, go to hell. Empathetic, like, no. They're just really great people, better than I could ever hope to be. So I'm appreciative that at least they were able to find solace and to be such an amazing family through and through. Right. Um. I like even I didn't write it down but one of the detectives had said like the family may have broken down once they got home they may lose it when they pack Mark's things but in Matamoros looking for their son talking to the press they held it together and were like the strongest people in the world so yeah it was just really touching yeah so sad But even though the Kilroys were able to find peace, the family of Constanzo's other victims didn't. Constanzo's other victims didn't have the benefit of two national police forces and the media helping them. Of his multiple Mexican victims, only nine have been identified. Mm. And police still suspect there are many more victims who simply haven't been found. Right. So we know that they found 15 bodies on the ranch when searching. But by the end of the investigation, they discovered more bodies suspected to be killed by Constanzo, bringing the number of known victims up to 23. Mexican authorities also point out that there was a large number of unsolved mutilation slayings around the Mexico City area and surrounding areas as well. But unfortunately, with the cartel violence known in Mexico and other groups practicing dark magic, it's really hard to say who committed these heinous crimes. Mm Mm-hmm. So to this day, it is really unknown how many the Matamoros cult truly killed. Oh, my God. But family friend Monica Rodriguez Davis had this to say, that though this is a case of witchcraft, it was God's plan all along. Because if it weren't for Mark's, Mark Kilroy's disappearing on that fateful day, it is unsure how many lives would have been lost to the hands of that insidious Matamoros cult. Very true. And that is the story of Aldolfo Constanzo, otherwise known as the leader of the Matamoros cult. 
Oh my god. My uh-huh. throat is sore. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So oh. I don't think I've ever heard of that cult. Maybe I saw it on this one cults, but so mm. I I am doing a fairly popular case. I don't like to do that too often, but when I read the details on this one, um, I was just really fucking blown back and it's just one that i i couldn't i couldn't not talk about could not not do it it was interesting it had a lot of factors like and a lot of tragedy so a lot of fucking tragedy a lot of torture but thankfully us it's not a happy ending but it's one that you can at least say has an ending right yeah yeah well shit so yeah and here's the part where i shamelessly plug our twitter and instagram so please if you enjoyed if you want more if you want to see the photos be sure to give us a follow and you can find us at r-a-r-w podcast and yeah cheers to not being in a fucking cult yeah God damn, cheers to Mm-hmm. And until next time, don't walk away from your drunk friends. And don't join a cult. And don't fall for beautiful men with mullets. <laughs> that too. Bye. Bye.